Welcome, Trinity Bible Church, and as well as guests and family members who are here. Uh, We are um, moving on through the Gospel according to Matthew. Today we will uh, begin uh, chapter 14. Uh, today, just as a, as a note, it's the, the text we're reading today is a bit irregular in terms of, as I read it, um, you're not going to pick up many things that make you go, that's a, that's a good thing to memorize. It, it, but it's an important text um, as it is a part of the whole story of the gospel. Of course, this is the account of the death of John the Baptist. Uh, so, as I read this morning... Uh, and if you're a guest, we'll, we'll read out, I'll read out loud the text this morning. And then I want to ask you to take a time of reflection um, on the text and asking God the Holy Spirit to open uh, your mind and transform you more through His Holy Word. And this morning, so I want, to, I want you to concentrate on your knowledge of, of John the Baptist and who he is. He was the forerunner. He was Elijah come again. He was a cousin on the human side of the Messiah. And he is put to death at 30 years of age. John doesn't speak in this passage, but his life screams out to us as one of faithfulness and one of tragedy. And in the midst of that, you have a contrast between him and one known as Herod Antipas, One who will command or be responsible for his death. Today, a sinful, greedy person moved at all times by their passions. And you have a contrast between these two men in the passage. But I would also want you to think about those own contrasts in yourself. As a believer, the desire to be faithful the desire to be just, to be strong in your faith, contrasted with the sin that resides in you, that at all times seeks to indulge the flesh. So don't get lost in a, a historical account of an event and go, okay, that was an event. No, this is, this is you. This is me. So, looking to chapter 14, verses Uh, 1 through 12 this morning. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here. On a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. 
And they went and told Jesus. This is the word of God. And I ask that you pray at this time. Heavenly Father, as we, your church, come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know we do so in the blessed hope of the resurrection, the ascension, and his return, and the glory in which he will return, and the bringing of his kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth, which we, his church, will be transformed to immortal bodies, sinless and perfect, in which we will be residents of his kingdom, celebrants of his majesty for eternity. But until such a time, we are marred by our own sin, our own choices, our own errors. Lord, let us understand this day the tragedy of sin and death is eclipsed by the hope and glory of Jesus Christ. And God, so it's in this, as we read this account today in our public worship, I ask our hearts and minds be focused on your word, sensitive to the urging of the Spirit to put to death sin in our life. And that our affections would be molded more and more to Christ-likeness. God, so I pray for the edification or lifting up of those in Christ. I pray for those outside of the church, the unbelievers in our midst. I pray, God, this day, this time, this moment, part of your sovereign plan of eternity past, that you have drawn them here today to give them new life in Christ through the moving of the Spirit and the efficacy of your Word and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, now may we continue in our worship of you through the Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The tragedy, the, the drama, the, the seemingly misplaced portion of the gospel as it's, as it's sandwiched between times of Jesus' teaching, almost as an afterthought. Because what you have here is actually an account of, of what you would call like a, like a flashback in a story. You're reading a book. And then all of a sudden, the chapter's getting really good, and then the next chapter says 20 years earlier, and you're like, come on. 
But this is the flashback of Herod. And so one of the things that makes this unique is we have a cast of characters we haven't been introduced to, and so I introduce them to you now. John the Baptist, you already know. He shows up in the Gospels as one who is out of the wilderness. Uh, He is a character. He is uh, clothed poorly. He cares nothing for hygiene nor his own personal health. He cares only for and seems to be sustained by the proclamation, the long-awaited hope since Genesis 3, the hope of Israel and through Israel the world, the one who has come to break the dominion of sin and death is coming. So he's, in paraphrase, telling all those who will hear, all you're playing around is over because he's here. And and the, the culmination of that is the baptizing of Messiah. As Jesus comes down to be baptized, not because he has sins to repent of, but because he has a hallmark, a witness to make to everyone there. As he is baptized, the triune God makes himself present in form of spirit as dove, son present at the time, and father whose voice is heard, all proclaiming, now is the time. The kingdom is amongst you. And John, prophet, final prophet of the Old Testament, the bridge between the old and the new, tells his own disciples, now I must recede. Because he's arrived. And now that he's proclaiming, there's no need for me other than to say, go listen to him. And so we don't hear about John at all. That's John, a prophet, a righteous man, one who Jesus will say, in essence, no one born in history is as great as John. That's John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, lest you of the Baptist tradition think he belongs to you. Too bad about those Lutherans and Presbyterians. They don't have John. Um, And now we have Herod. This is not Herod nicknamed the Great. This is Herod Antipas. He is a lesser son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a homicidal maniac. His sons, all to lesser degrees, would be of the same moral stock. This particular son, as you can see, was known as one who vacillated, meaning he could never make a decision. But he was given power by his father and the right of his birth, and he was... Rich beyond imagination. The Herodians, or the Herods, were actually half Jew and half Edomite. And they were given their power by Rome. And so every time you see a Herod or a name similar to that in the New Testament, this is a group of of Samaritans, if you will, that, that were in power only because they were friends of Rome. 
but it was also a precarious power. He was concerned about the Sanhedrin, the religious ruler of Israel. And so they played this game of one against the other. He, they knew he was in power because Rome put him there, and so the Sanhedrin or the religious rulers couldn't push too hard lest they get killed by Roman soldiers. He knew that he couldn't push too hard against the law or his lawlessness lest he have some type of uprising which would get your head removed from your shoulders by the same Roman soldiers. Rulers who ruled poorly under Rome, especially in backwater places like Jerusalem, where they just wanted the population to be happy and quiet and to pay their taxes, if there was too much uprising, yes, the people who did the uprising would all be crucified, but also the leaders would be done away with. So there was this agreement, if you will, between these two parties. And so Herod, when we have here in the beginning of 14, at the time, Herod heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants or his slaves, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And then when we're reading it, we're like, what, what, what? that sounds crazy. Why is he saying John the Baptist rose from the dead? Last time we heard John the Baptist, he was fine. He's been dead for a while. And so this flashback begins. He has been raised from the dead, he said. In verse 3, Herod had seized John, bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. You're like, well, that's weird. Because John had been saying to him, Herod, not Herod Philip, it is not lawful for you to have her. So now it opens up. Oh, one other thing about the Herod line. Take every imaginable outward sinful behavior that you see today and the Herods will one-up it. There was nothing that had limits seemingly for this family. They intermarried with one another at a, a shocking rate. They murdered at a whim. They killed each other almost as much as they married each other. And this is who this man is. John the prophet. Now imagine, Jesus is here now. John's only job is to point people to Messiah. And yet, this man who would call himself king of the Jews, Herod, and who is half Jew and has a, a, a peace treaty unspoken with the religious leaders, don't go too far, but if you remember John, John points to the Pharisees and calls them vipers. He calls them sons of the serpent, in, in essence. And then he goes to this king, and he tells him, because Herod has taken his half-brother's wife, his wife divorces his half-brother and then marries him. And they break the law in three different ways from the book of Leviticus both intermarriage and divorce and remarriage, and another aspect of brother's wife, all, that, all of it. So John tells the king, you have no right, you have, no, you have broken the law of God. Remember what I said about wanting to keep the peace? John was still very popular, so what they do is they throw him in prison, and they throw away the key. 
John's in prison for doing what he's done since the beginning of our seeing or meeting him is calling people to repentance. He called someone who had power over him politically, culturally, in every way, and didn't hesitate to say, you're a sinner. You've sinned this way by taking your brother's wife. She's a sinner by taking you as her husband. She's a sinner for divorcing her husband unlawfully. You're a sinner for remarrying a divorced woman who divorced her husband unlawfully. Oh, and plus you're related, and that's very gross. Also breaking the law. Power in the sense of the political, in the sense of the cultural, meant nothing for the person who was bound to the word of God. Now, if this had been a Roman official, John wouldn't have said anything because the Roman official wasn't bound to Jewish law. But this man was masquerading as a Jew. He was masquerading as one that would uphold the law. And so John goes, no, you're breaking the law. Repent. And so he's thrown into prison. And then the story plays out as Herod is recalling things. And we're going through it to go back to the beginning of Herod's fearful proclamation. And now we're introduced to Herodias, his new wife, who was once his sister. The gro- I appreciate the groans. And look what it says. The, the, one of his nicknames in history was Herod the Vacillator. So it says, and although he wanted to put him to death, he wanted to put John to death for John shaming him, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So on one hand, he's like, I could kill him, but then the people will uprise, and then I'll be dead. So he just sticks him in prison. But he's also calling out his new wife, former sister, and saying, She's also broken the law, and she has a different view on what should take place. Culturally, Herod had all the power, and she had none. But we'll see that that didn't work itself out quite that way. So, but when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, whose name is Shalome, danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, a few things of details. Birthday celebrations, annual birthday celebrations, is neither Jewish nor Christian in tradition. It's Greek. And it had to do with the celebration and offerings to pagan gods. So, no more birthday... No more birthday parties, Josh. And so this tradition at the time in the first century was utterly non-Jewish. So Herod throws a birthday party for himself. And he invites all the officials, it would have been Roman officials, Jewish officials, other parts of the Herodian party. It was a, it was a part, they had a very minuscule amount of people who were a part of the Sanhedrin because they were considered irreverent and, and immoral. But they're having a party and what's, what's implied in this instant is that the company, which means men, 
What's implied by it is that they are all drunk or impaired in some way from the celebration. And Salome's dance was sensual in nature. Number one, the birthday party should have never happened. Number two, it was considered on every standard, both Roman, Greek, Jewish, etc., that any female member of royalty would ever dance for men. And this is the court of Herod. So his adopted daughter dances for him. And I won't go into the details because we have children here, but the implication of when it's saying he is pleased is not because of her talent. All of it is suffused with the sensate, with sinfulness, with cultural, in every way, abandonment of all that is good and true and beautiful. And so because he is pleased and because he's drank too much, he makes an oath. And the oath is, you can have whatever you want. Now, what he imagined was probably a new Barbie house or whatever thing he, she might, a pony. Or with her, maybe a pack of hyenas. But Herodias, who is angry at the shame brought on her by the prophet of God calling her a sinner and an adulterer, has another plan in mind. Ask Daddy for John's head. And so because he's in company... of his peers and other probably multiple relatives branching off in all different ways, Roman officials, he's made an oath before them. I will give her whatever she will ask, no limit. And so she comes back and says, John the Baptist's head on a platter. And what it meant was she wanted his head right then, right now, in front of everyone. And look at his response. And the king, in verse 9, was sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. So as his birthday party is happening, as the perversity of already what's taken place, to caps cap off the entire event, Herod the vacillator makes a stand because he made an oath and he has to keep his word. I'm laughing at the insanity of the moral compass of of Herod the vacillator. He kills somebody, but he's sorry about it. Because he had kept his word. If he didn't keep his word, he'd be, guess, breaking the law. The madness of sin. The madness of temptation. The madness of indulging in a sinful lifestyle. 
imagining that it doesn't have some type of pervasive effect on your heart and your mind. In Mark chapter 6, it, it remarks about how Herod liked John, and he liked to go and talk to him. And so you, you even have here a man who seems to have some type of religious idea about certain things, but is ruled by his passion and ruled by a nonsensical, upside-down, bizarro-world ethical norm. Bizarro is reverse Superman. Because he holds fast to an oath to his adopted daughter who shamed herself in front of him and all of her friends to please her mother who then had her have someone killed to appease her ego. And in all of it, you have Herod simply saying, sorry that it had to happen, but I made an oath. Never mind that his whole life was breaking the law, but the one he held to was this oath. I gave her an oath. I told her anything she wanted. What Herod should have done was stand up and say, you're insane. That's a person's life. We are adulterers. We should repent. Abject tragedy. The final verse in this passage is John's disciples receiving his body and coming away with it. And the only thing you'll see in what comes after that event is Jesus hearing about it and seeking a place of solitude. Now, all the way back to verse 1 and 2. At the time, Herod had heard about the fame of Jesus, meaning Jesus' name was spreading both in his words and his works, miracles happening everywhere that could not be denied, but also in what had happened in chapter 12, where really according to Deuteronomy 13, the Pharisees called Jesus a false prophet. They tell him he's healing in the power of Satan which is a, a condemnation of Jesus as a false prophet. So these, this party that he's concerned about or he has some type of alliance with as well is talking about Jesus. The people are talking about Jesus. He's hearing the works. And this proclamation is supposed to be read as a fearful one, as one whose conscience is reminded of the crime he's committed. He's like, this is John. I don't know who this Jesus is, but this is clearly John the Baptist, and he has been raised from the dead. And that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. He hears the work of Jesus, and he thinks what happened is the man that he had murdered was raised from the dead by God. Raised from the dead by God and had an arrow pointing at Herod's court. You see what I mean about some type of religious belief? He believed that the oath was binding as it's prescribed in Numbers and Leviticus. He believes at least, which isn't a small belief at this time, that people can be raised from the dead by God. So much that he's fearful of it. Yet in the same manner, his life is ruled by sinful behavior. 
His life is ruled by base indulgences. And that's where we get to this point. Herod is a terrible person. That's, are, you, are you guys writing that down? Because I was, I was shocked. I was, oh, the theology today. He was terrible. But he was terrible like King Saul was terrible. He's terrible like his father Herod was terrible. He's also terrible like Ahab and every evil king of Israel. Terrible like Cain. But also Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who at moments throughout their lives were absolutely ruled by sinful indulgence. Herod is every man and woman who is in unbelief, ruled by their sinful indulgences. And it's also, if you are in Christ, who you once were, and if you are honest with yourself, who you still recognize. The ability for the person not on guard, for the person not well-disciplined, for the person not equipped and prepared at every time that Satan is waiting for you, roaring like a lion, wants to devour you, that temptation is at your door if you do not flee from it, if you wink at it, if you embrace it, It takes a moment. And you're no longer looking at the person in you who is John the Baptist. You're looking at the vacillator in all of us. The ease with which sin remains in our lives. The horror and the tragedy of a Christian man or woman falling to temptation, sinning, and continuing in it. And John's story is tragic. It's absolute tragedy, both in in a narrative sense and as it's placed within this story. But John's tragedy is eclipsed. It's eclipsed by what Jesus is going to continue and what he's going to do. His life was a forerunner of Jesus' life. His death is a precursor of Jesus' death. This is an unjust death. This is a righteous man being killed for nothing. His life being accounted as nothing for unjust, sinful people. Jesus is going to magnify that theme at his own death put to death by unjust, the ultimate righteous, spit on, beaten, marred, humiliated, willingly for his people. So in the midst of tragedy, though, as we continue in this gospel, this message of tragedy and John with death and the reality of sin and death in the life of all of us, the, the ease with which sin consumes people, Yet the rest of this gospel is Jesus going, yep, but. 
But just wait. Just watch. Just listen. To the cross we were singing about this morning. Jesus goes on the cursed tree to take the curse of God for you and me. I didn't intend that to rhyme. But I'm pretty proud of myself. (laughs) Which is a sin. And when we read the account of the gospel of the crucifixion, it's tragedy at its highest. It shows the tragic estate, not just of people like Herod, but of religious leaders who were waiting for Messiah. People who had been looking forward to it and studying it their whole life. And they yelled, crucify him. Crucify him. Because sin, so prevalent, so strong, so insane. But then Jesus rises from the dead, proclaiming victory over sin and death, showing the world who he was, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And the story wasn't over yet. He stayed until Pentecost to continue to teach and show people, all of his disciples, who he really was. And he promises to send a helper, and they watch him ascend back to his glory, his rightful place, his rightful power, no longer in humiliation, but in glory. And he sits in a throne, the right hand of the Father, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit to indwell the church. Now those who come to faith in Christ are born again and renewed in the Spirit, while still wearing this, what Paul calls a body of death. Now we have the right tools for the fight. And we're given the word and the spirit and each other. Living in a world gone mad, surrounded by sin. And frankly, surrounded by the ease of which temptation is everywhere for all of us at all times to trip up to slip up. But like the psalmist writes, when I slip up, I look and the Lord is there to pick me up. We are not destined to be Herod's. We are destined to be John's. He wants us to be like John the Baptist, but knows our estate. And that's the thing. Sin, if you're stuck in it, if you're drowning in it right now, I implore you, find someone in this room today who you trust, who you know, and go to them. Confess to them. Have them pray with you. Say, keep me accountable. Say, I will. And be renewed. We're not meant to live lives like this. 
enslaved by sin. You were set free. The tragedy is not what we live in. We live in the victory. We live in the hope of our Messiah. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may you grant your church to be empowered by the Spirit, moved by the Word, that we would see our time here on earth as believers as, as limited and, and, and at all times in combat, in war against sin that surrounds us, that indwells us. And we have given victory over that in Christ. Let us hold fast to those truths. Let us cling to one another in union with Christ and with one another through our shared union of God, the Holy Spirit. I pray now that our eyes and minds would be open to your word, that we would pursue you in fullness, that we would cast off dead works, that we would look at our own lives, see the things that are temptation, see the things that are leading to frivolity and indulgences in our own life and put them to death through the power of the Spirit. For the unbelievers today, I pray, God, that they are moved in their hearts, that the reality that they are sinners and they are broken, and you call them to repentance and their brokenness, no matter where in their mind they think it is, it is, it is nothing, it is, it, is, it is tiny, and when compared to the glory and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you would call them to repentance today. We pray all these things. And all the glory would go to God in Christ's name. Amen.